Hi, this is Bob Diamond, and welcome to Pathways to Prosperity. And on this show, we're going to be guiding you to how you can find your own pathway to prosperity. And we're going to be doing that by interviewing people who've made it, often coming from corporate jobs and transitioning into entrepreneurship. And also, I'm going to be telling my own story, because I certainly am a guy that transitioned from a very traditional career path, um, working for a large accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, when I first graduated from school, and then Coopers and Librand, another big, you know, big accounting and consulting firm, um, and then off to a big law firm. And I eventually found my, you know, my feet under me for an entrepreneurial path, and I found it's such a better life, and I don't regret for even a second leaving that corporate world behind, um, where you know you have to have face time, you have to make sure that you're cozying up with the boss and keeping people happy and playing the game of politics. Um, so today, as an entrepreneur, I'm really paid for performance. I'm paid for the value that I bring. I'm paid for the the deals that I engineer and put together. And the thing to know about this is that you can be also. You know, this isn't this isn't something just for someone born under a special lucky star. Um, it's really just for someone who's willing to go out there, um, take a chance. You know, try something, learn as you go, and and have some faith that you can do it in the end. And I promise you that there is a pathway to prosperity for you, and it does not have to involve, you know, office politics and and hoping you can scrape your way to the top of the corporate ladder. That's not at all necessary. Today, what we're going to be talking about is house flipping, because that is something that seems to have unending appeal to people, especially based on the number of shows that are on TV about house flipping. And there's a constant, constant set of new shows coming up. I know a lot of the people who are on those shows and put them together interesting people and interesting business. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, is house flipping actually a good business? And I would have to say that yes, with a couple of reservations. So I think generally speaking, it's a good business as long as you do it right and do it correctly. If you waltz in there not knowing what you're doing, um, you're going to get a very expensive lesson. And that's not what I want anyone who's listening to me to ever get. I'd rather do a little learning in advance and then you know, you take your lesson that way rather than than taking it out of your bank account. Um, so when someone's uneducated, they they make typically one of two mistakes. Um, they either do nothing, which is actually fine, but you can't get anywhere doing nothing. So if you don't do anything, you can't have any success because success and, and money generation involves you actually doing something. But lots of people end up doing nothing except studying, maybe even signed up for a mentoring program or some learning thing but they never actually do anything. I think for the most part, people do that because they have a lack of confidence and they just realize they don't know what they're doing and they're afraid to pull the trigger. The second thing is that people will sometimes do something stupid and literally get their head handed to them. And what I mean by doing something stupid, the number one sin that people commit in that area is they pay too much for the house that they're intending to flip and resell. And they typically do that because first of all, they don't know the numbers. They have no idea how much they can actually pay for a house. And they grossly overestimate how much they can pay and still make some money. And secondly, they find that if they do know the numbers, if they talk to someone who knows, maybe they have a mentor or maybe they have a friend who's doing it, um, they'll talk to someone who knows and then they hear the magic number and then they go out looking around through, say, a real estate agent and they can't find houses at that price. And then they say, well, I guess houses aren't available for that price, but I want to do something. So I'll just pay whatever I have to pay to get a house because I got to do something. 
And I want to share with you first the, the magic number. So to me and to many other people who are, who are professionals in this business and are successful at it, the magic number is pay no more than 70% of the after repaired value, meaning retail value, minus your fix up cost. So what that means is that if you had, just for very easy math, a $100,000 house, if you wanted to flip it, you wouldn't pay more than $70,000 for that house. And then you could buy it and flip it and do fine with it. Um, and you also, of course, have to take into account repairs. And the right math is to deduct the cost of repairs from your purchase price. So for example, if I'm talking about a $100,000 house that say needed $10,000 worth of repairs, I would want to pay $60,000 for that house. And the math behind it is that you're going to take 70% of after repaired value, so 70% of $100,000, and I'm going to deduct my fix-up cost of $10,000, and that makes my target not to exceed price $60,000. Now, the challenge with that is that when you go to a realtor, if you're getting 10 to 15% off the value, off the retail value of a house, they think that they found you an amazing deal. And actually for a realtor, meaning a real estate broker, that probably is an amazing deal because they generally don't have anything even approaching pricing like that because that's a retail marketplace. And you know, just like any store that you go to doesn't buy their inventory from other stores because they can't, they need to get it less expensively than that. As a house flipper, you cannot be getting your houses from retail sources like real estate brokers. And you just can't. You won't find the right pricing and you'll find that you're frustrated and not able to be successful. And what I want to do is show you some of the math. And I'm going to show you an internal um, spreadsheet that we use when we're looking at houses to flip. And I want to show you why this math is what it is. So if you take a look at your screen, I'll pull up my, um, my spreadsheet that we use internally. And this is a pretty simple spreadsheet. I'll zoom out a little bit so you can see it. So this is all that it is. This part down here is going to be our report that tells us how much money we'll make and tells us the various costs. This part up here with the yellow is where you put in the data. Um, so let's take a look at this. So if we had, let's take a more average house in America, which these days is around $400,000. So we're going to put $400,000 into the retail value of the, of the property that we're going to be reselling. Um, and let's say that we're going to pay for this house 70% minus fix-up costs. I'm going to start with 70%, which would be $280,000 as my purchase price. And then I've got to put in how many months it's going to take me to, to you know, buy and then resell this property. Um, I usually put in six months to start with. Now, if you had a, a long involved renovation, it might be more than that. But six months is generally a good amount of time to buy it, get it fixed up, get it back on the market and get it resold. Um, you put in something for your real estate commission on resale. These days, 5% is enough to get a broker with no problem. Um, the old days of 6% are, are not there anymore. So you can do 5%. Um, then you've got to pay for the money that you're going to be using for this thing, whether you're borrowing it from yourself out of savings or whether you're, you're getting a loan of some kind, which might be a mortgage, might be a home equity loan in your house. Um, it might be a hard money loan for the house. But let's say that you're using equity in your own home, so you're going to pay a 7% interest rate. Um, no points on that kind of a loan. So the and points are a percentage of the loan amount that you pay as a fee to get a loan. If you're using home equity line of credit, there's no points on that. Um, most places don't have any significant transfer tax. That's in there because we operate in Pennsylvania and um, their transfer costs can be very, very expensive. 
um, up to 5% of the value of the house. So, so that's in there because of that. And let's say that this house needed um, $50,000 worth of work. So we'll put that in there. Um, and then $6,800 in real estate taxes is about right for a $400,000 house. Um, and by the way, the annual real estate taxes, the mathematical average across the country is 1.7% of the, the value of a house is the real estate tax bill. Now that varies. You'll have some states like New Jersey or Texas where the, um, the taxes are higher than other states. Um, but you can easily look up when you're looking at an individual house, you can easily go on the tax assessor's website and see what the annual tax bill is. It's public information. It's as simple as going on the tax assessor's website for that county and putting in the address of the property. Um, and then we have insurance. And I want to give you just a, a heads up on this, on this insurance. Um, when you are flipping a house, you have to tell your, your insurance broker that you have a house that you're going to be working on, that you're not going to be living in, and you're going to be reselling. Because there's a different insurance that you have to get for vacant houses than there is for an occupied house. And the vacant house insurance is much more expensive than, than occupied houses, uh, generally 50 to 60% more. If you don't get the appropriate insurance, when you have a claim, they just won't cover it. So you may as well get no insurance. So make sure that when you're, when you're buying a house to flip, that you get insurance and you let your insurance broker know that you are going to be renovating that house and reselling it again. Otherwise the penalty is they'll take your money, but when you have a claim, they'll say, Oh, we're sorry. It was a vacant house. It's not covered. So make sure that you tell them that just understand it's a little bit higher cost. Utilities, I put $500 a month in here, you know, mathematically across the country, the average is $429 per month for, for utilities. Um, you're going to be renovating a house. A lot of times the guys leave the lights on overnight. They leave the, the windows open with the heat on. So, you know, it can be expensive. So 500 bucks a month should be enough for that. And also title insurance is another thing that you want. Um, title insurance, in case you don't know, is insurance that in case there's a title problem, like you bought the property from someone who really wasn't the owner, or there's an old mortgage that was never marked in the public records as paid off. And when you go to resell the property, you've got an issue. You want to make sure that you get title insurance. And the kind of policy you want is different than you might've got when you bought your house. You want to make sure you get what's called an owner's title insurance policy. Now, mostly when you buy a house, you're just going to get a lender's policy. And a lender's policy covers the lender because the lender's policy against any title problem. So for example, if you bought a house from someone who it turned out, you know, was not actually the owner or there's a fraudulent notarization or any problems like that. Um, if you don't have owner's title insurance, you actually aren't insured for any problem. Only your lender is. And as soon as that loan is paid off, the insurance ceases to exist basically. So Whenever you buy a house, whether it's one to flip or one that you're going to live in, you always want to make sure you get an owner's title insurance policy because that will last as long as you own the house. And you know, our house for most of us is our, our biggest single thing that we own. And you certainly don't want to have a problem with that that's not covered by insurance. So make sure that you get an owner's title insurance policy. Um, and then I always put a contingency for unexpected expenses. And 3% is an absolute minimum. The biggest problem you're going to have with unexpected expenses is almost always in your repairs and renovations. You know, it's very, very easy for repairs and renovations to go way over budget. And you really have to watch that. And I would say one of the, one of the traps in house flipping 
is making sure that you manage those renovations very, very carefully, um, that you're on site very frequently, you're checking things out all the time, and you just understand there will be unexpected expenses. And sometimes it just comes in the form of, you know, a contractor opens up a wall and he says, oh my gosh, there's mold in here, or, oh, look at these joists are cracked, or, you know, oh, there's termite damage, we couldn't tell. Because they can't tell a lot of that stuff until you do actually open up walls. And that's when you find problems and, you know, you're stuck with the house, so you've got to pay it. So expect that your renovations are going to go over budget and plan for it. And that's one of the reasons that, that I like to have a, a really healthy margin, which is at least, you know, at least paying no more than 70% of retail minus your fix up cost. A lot of that is just to accommodate the inevitable overruns in renovations. You really don't want to cut it close. So here's an interesting thing. So take a look at this. If we, if we bought the house for $400,000, I'm sorry, bought the house for $280,000, which is 120,000 off. I think it's a lot of money. And we spend only 50,000 on renovations. Now you might think, well, I'm going to make $70,000 on that house. And I would say, no, hold on right a second. You're not, you're actually going to make what I would expect is $16,000 on that house. And I would tell you, I wouldn't be investing $280,000 plus 50,000 in repairs on the hope of making you know $17,000 when this project is done. I'd say no way. So let's take a look at where did this money go? Well, um, here's the, the top number is how much the house is worth when it's renovated, meaning what are you going to resell it for? Um, and then these are all your expenses. So when you see all these numbers down here, these are all your expenses. So we have um, $280,000 that was, was paid for the property. Um, and then we have 20,000 in commissions. That's 5% when we sell the property to a real, a real estate broker. Um, $11,550 in interest. 50,000 in repairs and renovations, again, assuming that we stay within our budget, $3,400 in property taxes. Why is that? We owned it for six months. So that's one of our costs. Um, $1,440 in property insurance. Again, that's six months worth of insurance. Um, $3,000 spent on utilities, $1,800 on title insurance, and $12,000 for a contingency reserve. So that's you know, going to be those unexpected things or when you decide when you're in the middle of renovation, oh, we should really also do this or, oh, let's put in, you know, all new appliances or, oh, we need to replace some windows, whatever it is, that's, that's your renovation. So that's how you go, believe it or not, from a $400,000 house that you bought for $280,000 and barely making any money. So let's, let's take a look if we do what I said, which is pay 70% minus the fix-up costs. So we're going to go 280 minus 50. So we're going to pay 230,000. And now we have a really good profit margin. Now we have a $68,000 profit margin. And for a project that takes you six months to do where you're, you're putting up, you know, $280,000 to get involved with it, meaning 50,000 renovations plus $230,000 in purchase price. I think that's a much more appropriate profit. Now it's a free country. You could, you could, you know, do something else in, in your life, but I wouldn't do it. Um, sophisticated and smart and experienced house flippers um, spend their time shopping and, and finding good deals before they go out and do a deal. You know, your point is not to do a deal. And it's just, it comes to mind when back in the day, when I was doing a lot of house flipping, I used to take on a couple of, of people as, as mentees, meaning I was their mentor and I was helping them flip houses. And inevitably someone would come up to me every couple months and say, Oh man, 
you know, I just, I, I went and you know, you told me to, to pay 70% of retail and went out there. I couldn't find houses. I went to every realtor I could talk to. I couldn't find any houses. And I said, I got to do something. So I just bought a house and I, you know, I paid, you know, 80% of retail and boy, were you right. I'd rather than you have, you know, that as your experience that you just do the math in advance. Um, and if we look at this scenario where we, you follow my suggestion, which is pay no more than 70% of retail minus fix up cost. Um, you have a $68,000 profit margin. My prediction, by the way, is that it's not going to be quite that high, that more typically you're going to have some cost overruns in your renovation, which are high, 20, 30% is very common. So my, my guess is that you're going to not have a $50,000 renovation, but you're going to have a renovation that's, you know, 65 or $70,000. Um, that's my prediction. anyway, just based on a lot of experience in this. And you can see this report that tells you what you're going to make. And what I used to do with this, and I started flipping houses when I was very young. I was probably 23 or 24 when I flipped my first house and I didn't have any money. I had no, like I'm not born with a silver spoon. And so I had to you know, get money from friends and family. We used to make reports like this. And back then we didn't have Excel like we do today, but I'd make a report like this that would show people, you know, what, why we needed the money that we needed where the money was going to go, what the expenses would be, what the profit margin would be. And if nothing else, it showed that I was doing some planning. Um, these days with the spreadsheet, much easier because you, you take just a couple of minutes to fill in the data um, and you can see exactly you know, why you're going to make what you're going to make. And you also see what kind of a margin you have. So in this particular property, I have $68,500 in estimated profit. Plus I have $12,000 to play with here in the reserve. So if everything went perfectly, which doesn't generally happen, but if it did, I'd actually make 68,000 plus 12,000. So I'd make, what's that? 80,000. That's, that's not what's actually going to happen in all these things. The renovations go over budget, especially these days with staffing shortages and materials having gone up, you know, inflation is, is alive and well, especially in the building trades and building trades, people are hard to find. So, so it takes a while. So anyway, this is a, a spreadsheet and, what I'd like to offer you guys, because I think it would be very helpful, if you would like a copy of this to use when you're maybe looking at a property to flip or just to sort of educate yourself on it, I'm happy to give you a copy of this and you can you can check it out and um, and hopefully it'll be helpful to you. And what we'll do is I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And also, if you go to our website for the this podcast, which is pathwaystoprosperityshow.com, um, we'll put it there also and totally free, you know, no, no commitment on your part to get a copy of it. And the things I'll just tell you about. So you put things in the yellow section here. So you put all those things in, you can change your contingency. You can change all these things. Um, by the way, you're going to look up a few things like the annual real estate taxes. As I said earlier, just go on your local tax assessor's website, put the property address in and you'll find out what the tax bill is. Annual insurance cost. Very simple to just get a quote from your, from a broker. Um, super simple to get the actual insurance and make sure again, you tell them that it's vacant house insurance. Um, title insurance, any title insurance company can quote you on it. Um, there aren't that many title insurance companies and they all tend to charge about the same thing. So anyone is fine. First American title is great. Chicago title is great. Stewart title is great. They're all fine. Um, so you're going to, you'll put that number in. Um, 
and then you could play with the numbers. And you know, it's interesting. So if you take this, if you take this to about 86%, of, if you take the purchase price there, that's generally where you hit break even. So I'm just going to show you that just so you'll, you'll see it. So an interesting thing that you should also know is if you take um, the purchase price and you make it instead of 70% of retail minus fix up, if you take it to about 86% of retail minus fix up, then it's usually around break even. So, so I'm just going to show you how that works. So if we took the $400,000 value and we multiply that times 0.86, so we're going to pay 86% of value. So if we do that, and then we deduct the fix-up cost. So we're going to deduct this $50,000 fix-up cost. Um, you can see we just basically hit break-even, $2,200 in profit. Just so you know, if you take, and I'll put this. So if you want to look at sort of what your range might be, know that if you get up into like 86%, you're flat break-even. And that's assuming that things go well. So anytime something goes wrong, takes a little longer to sell the house, you have an unexpected repair or renovation, or you said, oh, we really should do all the windows or, oh, it really does need a new roof, whatever it might be. Or if house prices drop slightly while you're holding the house, you'll get killed. So just know that because when you go, if you go house shopping through like a real estate broker, for example, it's almost impossible to find a house cheap enough to flip. And by me, to me, cheap enough to flip means 70% of retail minus fix-up cost. The real estate brokers just don't have those that inventory. It's a retail source. It would be like you go to Costco and you buy things that they they went and bought from Walmart. I mean, it wouldn't work, right? Because they they Costco can't go shopping at Walmart to stock their shelves. Costco has to import things directly from wherever they get them, China or wherever it is. And it's the same thing when you're in the house flipping business, you're the retailer, you have to source from wholesale. So a question would then be, so if I'm going to source from, from, you know, wholesale, what does that mean? How do I do that? And I found really three good places to do that. One is tax foreclosure sales, um, tax foreclosure sales. Often you can find houses, you know, cheap enough, you know, 70%, you can find them. The challenge with tax foreclosures is generally the houses are in very neglected condition. If, if you lost your house because you didn't pay the taxes, which would have been for at least three or four years, they also don't do repairs either. Because if you're, if you're so financially strapped that you can't pay the real estate taxes, you're not repairing the roof or anything else. So a lot of times those houses are in rough shape. They also tend to be in, in neighborhoods that are, are poorer. And not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that in poor neighborhoods, you know, you're more likely to have other problems. You know, it might have been a long term a house that's been neglected over the long term, or a house that maybe when they did repairs, they were kind of jury rigged together or done by the homeowner, so not really done that well. Um, it's just a, a fact of it. And you know, so I, I I like tax sales, but acquiring house inventory, I think you're you're going to get rougher inventory there for sure. Uh, mortgage foreclosure sales can be very good. Those houses tend to be in much better shape than than the tax foreclosures. Um, so those can be very good buys. It usually takes a couple of rounds going to the sales to find something worth buying. Um, generally, when I'm buying in Pennsylvania, I'm at three or four sales before I buy anything that that is right pricing. And there the sales are monthly in each county. So it could take three or four months to get something. But that being said, you will find good deals if you do that. And one of the keys to good investing is to be patient. You know, don't try to force the deal. Just be patient. You know, the best investors in the world, Warren Buffett and people like that are absolutely patient. They buy when the deal is right. And I think it was Warren Buffett that said, you know, one great thing about investing is you get as many at-bats as you want. 
You can just watch all the pitches come across. It's not like three strikes and you're out. Um, same thing with foreclosure investing. You can look at house after house after house. You don't have to buy anything, especially at a foreclosure auction. You can just sit there and do nothing. And yes, you'll spend some time doing due diligence. You'll spend some time trying to trying to check out the houses. But better to let a bad deal pass than to, to get involved. Because when you get involved with a bad deal, that involves your money, your time, and your effort. And also has what's called an opportunity cost where you know, you're know you not doing something else because you're stuck doing the thing that you're doing. And opportunity cost is you buy a house that you're then going to flip and resell. You spend time on that. And that means you don't have time to go look for another house. Maybe you don't have money to go look for another house. And so you're stuck with that deal. So just be careful what you ob obligate yourself to and just do the math. You know, Use the spreadsheet. I'm happy to give it to you as, as my gift. It's absolutely free. And just so you know, it went into this. The first draft I did of this took about 15 hours to do. I know it may not look that complex, but it took about 15 hours to do. And since then, it's been revised and revised and revised. It's very accurate. It's very powerful. And it makes a nice short report. And I'm, it's bothering me watching this break even because I don't like it. So I'm just going to put this back to 0.7 because I really don't like looking at looking at things that are um, that are not profitable. It bothers me at the core. So, all right. So 0.7 is what I want you to be paying. Um, it's just math. You, you know, don't argue with math, as I would say. And so you just fill in things in yellow. That's your part. You do those. And then down here, it'll give you report. And also, by the way, it tells you your, your monthly carrying costs. So this is what it costs you to have each month. That's good information to have because if your house is selling slowly, you know that you know every month that you have this house, it's about $3,000 less in profit. Yet another reason that we want to make sure we have a nice, healthy margin going into these things. So that's the Flipper spreadsheet. Hopefully it'll be helpful to you. And hopefully, you know, my comments were helpful to you also. And, you know, I would say, you know, when you're thinking about houses to flip, I think your your place to get the inventory. Oh, I forgot. There's a third place. The third place I've had good luck finding houses to flip is houses being sold out of estates. And the key to that has been talking to attorneys that handle estates and letting them know that you're interested in buying houses and that you can make cash offers and close quickly and they don't have to do any repairs. Because the men and women that are estate attorneys do run into houses that just need to be liquidated. You know, maybe a small part of the estate, but it needs to get sold. And a lot of times there, there's just not the energy or the time um, in the family to fix up the house or even to empty it out of furniture so it can be sold. And a lot of times they do need repairs. They're at a minimum just dated because, you know, typically people aren't, you know, younger than 80 before they die these days. And a lot of times the last time the house was really touched was, you know, 30 years ago. And so houses are, are dated and it may be simple, just repainting, redoing the carpets, sprucing up the landscaping and maybe doing some repairs like a new roof. But, you know, the houses are at a minimum dated. And so those are pretty easy renovations, which is nice. Um, there are also some houses where they're just in really bad shape. And, and those ones, the estate attorneys just usually dump them. And what you want to do is talk to a couple of attorneys that handle estates and say, hey, I'm looking to, to buy some houses. So if you've got something, I will be happy to go look at it quickly, get you an offer quickly and close quickly. Um, and when they do send you something, you know, get out and look at it, make an offer at whatever price you can make. And if you get the deal, you get the deal. If you don't, you don't. And that's a, a sign of a good investor 
is that you don't want to be too attached to any one transaction. You don't want to say, oh, I got to get started. So I want a house. You don't want a house. You want a good deal that will reward you for the time, money, and effort that you put into something. And so just be obedient to the math because this math is not, is not a joke. It's real. And, you know, when you look at this margin, you may, you know, you'll have feelings about it, whether it's too much, too little, whatever. Um, I know it probably looks like a lot to most people, but remember to get that margin, you're investing cash to buy the house or you're obligating yourself to a loan. You're, um, you're investing cash or obligating your house yourself to a loan to fix up the property. So just between those two things, it's you know $230,000 to buy it, $50,000 to fix it up. That's $280,000 that then you've got to sell for more and convert to a profit. So just keep that in mind. You don't actually want a deal. What you want is a good deal. So, so be patient because that's what the best investors are. Just a couple other things. The, the two biggest hurdles with house flipping Number one is finding the deal. So we went over that, you know, the math now. The second thing is, is don't get in over your head on renovations, especially if you're newer and you don't have a lot of construction experience. I would be really hesitant to get into a, a super heavy renovation job, like something where there's a foundation problem or anything like that. I think that you know, when you're new to the business, before you've kind of cut your teeth, I, I wouldn't get into a, a major renovation. I think it's a mistake different if you have a background in that, if you're a contractor or have you know a background in construction, I think you're in a much better position to deal with a heavy renovation job. I think if you're new and you're new to construction and you're new to all this, I, I don't think you do. I would tell you to keep shopping and you know shop until you drop, meaning just shop until you find the deal that you want. And the other thing I would say is that please do not ever, ever talk to your contractor about how much money you're making. Don't tell them how much you bought the house for. Don't tell them how much you're going to resell it for. Don't tell them anything because inevitably they're going to try to figure out a way to take your profit and put it in their pocket. I promise this is, this is the way life works. So do not blabber your mouth to anybody on the construction site about how you're going to make all this money with this house flip, because I guarantee you those contractors will find a way to get that money from your pocket to theirs. Just trust me on that. And you do need to get multiple estimates for your project. You know, you cannot just go to one guy and say, oh, great, you can have the job. You can't do that. You have to handle this, you know, professionally and diligently. And it means that you need to get three estimates for all the major work. You need to let people know you're getting other estimates so they can, you know, sharpen their pencil and give you the best price they can. And you also want to have deadlines in your contract that, if they don't finish on time, it starts costing them money. Um, you know, contractors don't, you know, they don't care when it's finished and you need to make sure that you have deadlines that they're committing to. And if they go past that, it needs to impact them financially. So you need to have penalties for not getting the work done. And this just needs to be the case because if, if you don't have that, your, your project will drag on. Um, and the last thing I would say, lots I could talk about, but last thing I'll say for today is make sure you hire a contractor that's actually equipped to do the job that you're doing. Um, you know, early on in my career, I, I bought a house at a, at a um, foreclosure auction, not a big house, probably 1800 square feet. feet. It was a little three bedroom. It was in a place called Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, really nice, nice neighborhood, um, super, not super neighborhood, not in this neighborhood, super neighborhood. And you know, I was new in the business and there was a contractor that I had to do a few things for me. He was basically an HVAC contractor. 
but I was talking to him about this and he's like, Oh, I can handle that. It's winter. You know, I'm kind of slow and I, you know, I could definitely handle this whole thing for you. So I hired him to do the whole job and he was a one man band and it was way above his, his capacity. And so what happened was he went in and took the whole house apart, meaning did the demo and then didn't come back. And I called him. He's like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I got another job. I'm busy, but I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And this went on and on. So finally about five months had passed with really not much else happening than the, than the house being taken apart. And I had to fire him. And that was a big fight. Very ugly. You know, he, he didn't want to be fired. I had to fire him. And I just learned, you know, one of the lessons I learned from that, it's just don't give someone a job that's too big for them. You need someone who's equipped to do the job that you want to get done. Um, and also don't ever tell your general contractor that you're, uh, that you're making a bunch of money in a house flip. And the most successful house flippers um, do a couple of things. They work up to the point where they're doing enough volume that they're giving contractors a lot of work so they become an important client. You know, when you're first starting and you only have one job that's a one-time job from the contractor's perspective, they're only going to pay so much attention to you and they're only going to be so careful with you because they're just assuming, hey, this is a one-time job. I won't ever see this guy again. So, you know, maybe I will go do another job for two or three weeks and then come back. And that is what happens. And that's just teething pains at the beginning. You can get over that. Um, but, you know, you want to get to the point where you're doing a, a good volume of work. And also in this business, it really pays to, in a lot of ways, act as a general contractor. It can be really difficult to maintain enough control and enough margins um, if, you're, if you have a general contractor who's in there trying to figure out ways so he can charge you more, so he can make more. Um, most people who are in this business end up having their own crews and by, you know, their crews are not necessarily full-time for them, but it's someone that is a carpenter that works for them. You know, every month has a couple of days worth of work or it's someone who's a plumber that it's, you know, every month getting work, someone that you have a lot of control over because they really want to keep your business. Um, that's often where this goes. And, you know, that's what you want to target. You want to target doing enough volume so that you always have jobs going you can keep your your subcontractors employed you know regularly and that way they'll show up and they'll finish your work and you know it's not something that that is very easy to successfully do where you're doing like a house every 6 months that's really difficult to do um if you're there at the beginning it's fine just recognize that over time that's where you're going to want to build to um i do think house flipping is good i do think that you should go in there with them you know open eyes and i think you should you know think before you act and certainly do spreadsheets before you, before you act. But if you do that, you can make a great living out of it. And I think it can be very good. Um, if you have questions about this, what I'd ask is just, just put your comments in with questions. And if, if there's some interesting questions, I'll, I'll see about doing another video to answer them, or, or maybe I'll have one of my folks go in, into the, uh, the questions and answer them if it's something simple we can ask. But I'm interested to know what you'd like to know more about. You know, it's one of the challenges of being an expert. You don't always remember what, you know, what you didn't know at the beginning. And I do want to help you be successful. And if house flipping is something that might be your pathway to success, I have a lot of experience with it. I did it for years and I'm more than happy to share my experience with you. So this is attorney Bob Diamond. This is Pathways to Prosperity. Um, please like it. If you like this podcast, I'm assuming you made it to this level, you liked it. Um, if you subscribe, you'll get notices of new episodes and I'd love to have your questions. So please put them in down below and your comments so that I can know 
you know, how this is striking everybody. And that's it for today. So thanks for being here and I'll see you next time.